When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tactical Yanks podcast, your podcast for soccer in America and around the world. I'm your co-host, Pete Douthit, and I am joined by my fellow co-host, Filippo Silva, and welcome to the Tactical Yanks podcast. Hopefully you enjoy. We'll be talking about U.S. soccer, European soccer, South American soccer, the World Cup, and much more. All right, everyone, we're back here as we promised last week. We said we would be recording pretty much a recap, review, and our takes on the, the, the pretty much the main part of this camp, to be quite honest. I don't think uh, Grenada and, and El Salvador are really going to prepare us for the World Cup, and we might even see some players go away. Regardless, we're here, Pete, to talk about Morocco and Uruguay. We're here and we have some separation from the two games, right? You know, the, usually the analysis that we do post game is right after a game. You're still emotional. You're still, um, you know, you, you don't get to review everything. And, you know, at least I don't know about you, but I've rewatched both games um, several times now. And I feel like I have a clearer sort of picture on everything and just kind of look at both games from not a bird's eye view, but a withdrawn view with some time to reflect and reevaluate and yeah, we should dig into this. And because it was, I mean, overall, the Uruguay performance was not great, but between the two games, we, we played World Cup opponents, which was great to see quality opponents that we honestly need to be playing more often. And it exposed some weaknesses for sure in our, in our lineups, in our, in our player pool, in our tactics, but they were also, you know, positive takeaways that we'll, we'll get into. Yeah. I was only able to rewatch Morocco. Right. That okay. was the only one. I haven't had time to rewatch Uruguay. We're recording this the day after the game. I had to make the video, prepare some stuff. Uh, recorded with Nico Carrera today, too, the Mexican American that plays in Hostein Q in Bundesliga 2. Okay. So I haven't had time to rewatch the Uruguay one. But I mean, still fresh in my memory. Obviously, once you rewatch it with no emotions, no anger, or no happiness, anything, you can get more out of it. Yeah, but I think what bothered me the most about that game, we're going to get to that, is the context of the lineup Uruguay put and who we were facing. That's what bothered me the most. If we got a draw 0-0 with Uruguay's A squad and it was scrappy and ugly, I really wouldn't mind it too much. Um, But that's not quite what it was. We're going to address all of that. Before we start, do you have a review to read or anything? Uh, Yep. One quick review from iTunes, guys, or Apple Podcasts, rather. And thanks, everybody, for, um, you know, all the reviews that you you left. This is from W Deckman. Love it. Five stars. I listen to podcasts every day. I've been loving Unsackable, and I'm so excited for you guys to start this up. Been watching you guys for over a year and love your work. Keep it up. Thank you very, very much, W Deckman. So Unsackable is the one with, uh, with I, I got to go call out Manuel too for some of his takes there too. I'll make sure to call out Manuel Faith with that too. But that's not for this topic. And today we're not going to talk about any European soccer. There were a lot of games going on. We do know we're going to face Wales in our group in the World Cup, Wales, England, and Iran. But we're not going to go through this one. 
That might be an episode that maybe in July we'll do a full breakdown of the group. We'll talk about each opponent. We'll save that for later. I know Pete's also going to be doing a watch along. I mean, by the time you guys are listening to this, I know he's going to do scouting Germany and England a little bit for yeah. the World Cup. But regardless, why don't we kick off with Morocco? We played them yes. last week. I believe it was Wednesday. Yes, on Wednesday. Wednesday we played Morocco. And we <laughs> defeated them 3-0, right? Mm-hmm. It's a... In terms of just looking at the number, no perspective, no context, nothing. 3-0 against a team that's going to the World Cup that caused trouble to Spain, Portugal, and Iran in 2018. uh, That has some quality players. It looks pretty damn good. And it was good. It was good. I wouldn't say it was as good as the result, right? 3-0 is fantastic. I couldn't see us beating Morocco 3-0 in the World Cup. It would be a much tougher game. Where do you want to start? With the positives or negatives of that game? I mean, I guess context of the game is important. And, you know, I saw this even more clearly when I broke down the video on Patreon was just how how little Morocco seemed to care about this game. You know, uh, the intensity that they brought was not what you would face at a World Cup. And that's true of all friendlies. But at least with Uruguay, they did bring that intensity. Mm-hmm. Morocco, I think their minds were very much on their two AFCON qualifiers that they had to go back to Africa and play directly afterwards. Um, so they really didn't bring their, not only every single player that, that played, but you could just tell from the way they were approaching that game, that they were approaching it very much as a friendly. We got a lot of space in midfield, which helped us to create, but what I enjoyed the most about, I guess my first takeaway from that Morocco game was the willingness to put, uh, some creativity in midfield and have Aronson play inside with Christian Pulisic, which, you know, we haven't seen Burhalter be willing to do that in the past. So that was a very encouraging performance. And honestly, without Aronson, I don't know if we get quite the same performance level out of him. Yeah, I think another positive of that game was overall Greg Burhalter's subs, right? Yeah. He did have some of his, not many of them, but he had, for example, Rodon and Ariola off the bench, and they never came in. While we yeah. saw Weston, De La Torre, Malik Tillman get his first cap, Haji Wright return. CCV, Joe Scali, they all got minutes, so he gave everyone a chance. And I'm assuming he was doing that, looking forward to the World Cup. Yeah. Right? Uh, I do want to add something to the context there that you said about intensity. Uh, rewatching it, yes, that was noticeable. One thing I noticed, too, was in the first 10 minutes, the United States looked good. We looked good. We started good. And then Morocco started to get very comfortable in the game and very dangerous, right? They were yeah. actually getting pretty close to scoring. And obviously, I think if they scored, maybe they would have gotten excited about it. The intensity might have gone up and they might have actually wanted to win. I wonder how much us scoring two goals during that period of time from the 15 to, um, what was it, 15 to the 40-minute mark where Morocco was better than us and we scored two goals, the first one with Brendan, then with Timothy Weah, how much that just just – just i don't know i'm trying not to curse to just got to their head and just like okay crap i don't care about this anymore it's 2-0 uh, yeah because they were playing better for a good 20 or 30 minutes in the first half than us yeah so the first 10 minutes was all us we were pressing yeah. them making their lives very difficult but then from 10 to about 20 it was almost all morocco and they had three or four chances that they didn't finish and then uh, we scored Turner. twice during that period of time Right. And then directly after that, we scored twice and that sort of knocked the stuffing out of them. You know, they were just like, oh, man. And that can, you know, goals can kill off a game. It can change the trajectory of how an opponent is playing, you know, and they were good goals. I mean, Tim Weah's goal, we owe a lot to their goalkeeper. 
We also owe a lot to the space that he got in that little pocket to be able to receive the ball on the turn, drive at goal, and then shoot from, you know, a dangerous area. The goalkeeper should have done a lot better with that. You know, um, Aronson's goal was largely due to Christian Pulisic. I mean, first of all, Morocco was playing a very high line, right? And so Walker sees that and credit to him. He plays a, a decent or good ball, you know, over their back line. Pulisic runs on to it, takes it down, evades pressure and holds the ball long enough for Aronson to make that late run and finish. So our quality can show out, you know, if you give us even the slightest time and space, whether that's in front of the defense or behind them, our quality can show out. And it did in that moment. Can we talk about that ball from Walker real quick? It was a sure. good pass, right? It was a good pass. But it's kind of crazy how some people were giving so much credit to that pass, ignoring completely the fact that the only reason it's a good pass is because Christian Pulisic is a player capable of taking a touch like that, the way he yeah. did, right? If you put any other player, and that can be even good players, like even, honestly, Tim Weah, Jesus, um, I mean, not a good player, but Ariola, any of those, even Brendan, those aren't play Weston. Those are not players that are capable of making that touch as like just the way Pulisic did. So credit to Walker because he was able to still send a long ball in the right range where Pulisic was still able to get there before the goalkeeper and the defender, right, right in between. But let like I say, 70 to 80% of that goal is Pulisic and then 10% of Walker, 10% of Brendan for being there. For sure. I mean, it's funny you say that because actually Walker had a similar ball to Paul Ariola against Uruguay, where he, the, his first touch takes the ball about 15 or 17 feet in the air. And what that does is, is allows the Uruguay defender to recover and win the ball back. And it just shows you the difference in technical quality, you know, the drop off there. But yeah, but let's not Morocco, talk about Ariola now, right? He, what he did was criminal against Uruguay. He freaking destroyed our, let's go back to Morocco. Well, we'll get to that. The thing about that is Morocco playing a very high line in that instance, which gave Pulisic space to run into. And again, credit to Walker for recognizing the space. But if you're going to play a line that high, you have to have pressure on the ball at all times because any, any pressure from Morocco on Walker and he's not able to play that ball, you know? So if you're going to play a high line and not get pressure on the ball, you're going to get killed. And that's essentially what Morocco did. They played into our hands the way that they wanted to play made it easy for us. Yeah, so I'm trying to. Th we we mentioned the positive of, of Greg's willingness to do the right thing, right? Um, I believe he didn't play Roldan, didn't play Ariola. The result is another positive. I guess we can go through maybe a few negatives, right, of that yeah. game. So I, I'm going to say two right away. One was Aaron Long, not not even like in terms of performance. His performance wasn't as bad as maybe the first time I watched it. But he also was probably our worst defender in the game and maybe our worst, maybe the worst player we had that game. I think so, maybe, right? Yeah. Well, um, he was charged with El Kabi, marking El Kabi. Um, yeah. And well, Kabi would drop so deep into midfield and Aaron Long would follow him into midfield. And oftentimes El Kabi would lay it off and then make a run in behind that Long would be too slow to turn and track, or El Kabi would turn Aaron Long on his own. And, you know, that Aaron Long won a yellow card got a yellow card for fouling El Kabi in exactly one of those minutes. According to MLS's website, Aaron Long did not put one wrong foot in this game. Wow. <laughs> not one, not one. He was, he was, I don't, I don't understand if, if he didn't put one wrong foot, why didn't they just give him a 10 rating? I mean, did nothing wrong. 
right? Just give him a 10. Wait, I, I, I still think the problem with Aaron Long to me is the fact that it just looks like he is Burhalter's guy. If anything, he might even be ahead of Zimmerman for, for Greg Burhalter. Um, I mean, he when he was coming back from the Achilles injury, Burhalter kind of teased us with that by bringing him into camp. And every opportunity he's been getting Aaron Long without being crazy opportunity, right? It would be crazy if he started Long in World Cup qualifying after playing two professional, two competitive games in over a year. But as soon as he's getting chances, he's throwing Long out there. Every time he gets a chance, he does that. I believe – didn't he put Long against Panama in Orlando? I think yeah, he did. and he had the mistake that led to the Panama goal. So he gave away the free kick that led yeah. to the Panama goal because he got beat in isolation. And so, this is the big concern with Aaron Long is like when we're defending as – I mean, there's two concerns. When we're defending as a group in a block, then mostly he's fine. But when we're defending in transition and he has to defend on an island, he has to defend, you know, in a breakaway situation, that's where it's very worrying. The other part of Aaron Long, and we didn't see this too much against Morocco, we saw it more against Uruguay, was he can pass the ball just fine if he has acres of space to do it. But the minute there's high pressure, he can't do it. And he ends up just lumping the ball away because he's not able to play with the ball at his feet. He's even worse than Walker uh, with his feet, if you ask me. Yeah, not, and, and another issue is when we lump the ball away, we don't really have a target man, do we? We're playing with Jesus most of the time, and it looks like he is Greg's guy because I guess he leads us in XGs, apparently, uh, per 90. He has like 0.5 XG or something per 90, and he is leading, by the way, and he's definitely underperforming his XG. And the whole argument behind that is he finds space. He makes the right runs. My question is, the hell, like, the heck is the point of making the right runs, being the right place, being the right time, if you never score? Yeah, sure, he scores. Finish, if you can't finish 1v1s with the keeper, then there's no, or even without the keeper, like against Uruguay, three yards out with a header and he misses. How is that any better than a player that doesn't make those runs and doesn't, like, Okay, they say eventually he'll score. Well, if you throw Sargent out there, eventually he's going to score too. For crying also, out loud. in the World Cup, you're not going to get lots of chances, right? You're going to have limited opportunities. And if you don't score those, now you've lost the game, right? You're going to get limited chances in a World Cup game, and you have to be clinical with them. And, can we, we and Ferreira is far from clinical. The problem is it's not that he's missing chances. He's missing easy chances. And it's been like that for a while. We saw them work up qualifying a few times with Jesus. Yeah, against and Honduras. And, and, and then Honduras. Uh, no, El Salvador. El Mexico, Salvador. Mexico. Mexico. The, the he missed one too. And then if you go back, um, and, and I mean, we talked about PFOC's chance that he missed. And PFOC, it was one, right? Yeah. PFOC missed one against Mexico. And then Jesus keeps missing these goals. And, and it's just, don't worry, his XGs are good. Be calm. Well, it's not just that. There's also the argument that he holds up the ball and combines well. I don't really think that's true. You know, if you watched, and I watched both of these games, Ferreira can combine well and hold off, you know, or hold up the ball when A, it's played to his feet because he can't do it in the air. B, when he doesn't have a defender right on his back. When he doesn't have a center back tight to him, he almost always gives the ball away because he can't do it under pressure. So it's like, yeah, if we think that they're going to give him lots of space in a World Cup to combine, then that's fine. But that's not going to be the case. And we saw this very much against Uruguay where when he would come deep to receive the ball, if any of the center backs tracked him, he was not an outlet.
No, I, 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 we, I think we talked about this in a podcast a long time ago, or two, not a long time ago, like four weeks ago. And some people even said that I was being kind of harsh on Jesus because I, 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 my question was, what is he good at? Right? What is he actually good at? Not good at in MLS. In MLS, he's a good goal scorer. He's proven that last yeah. season and this season. But what is he actually good at against? high intensity tough opponents because i'm sorry mls does lack intensity a lot in quality at times too yeah what is he good at and 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 people just oh he makes the right it's always the same thing like just like Ariola, he stretches the back line he so his, no, his movement is good i'll give ferrera that he he does move off the ball quite well he's good at occupying space and reading space but that is that trade-off of he's not if he's good at moving off and 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 recognizing space, but then he can't do anything with it at the end of the day. But that, it's a useless skill if you because yeah because as far as I'm concerned, you can maybe get a guy that's not very skilled on the ball, but just like like a coach, a coach might have a great reading of the game, but if you put him there, it doesn't matter if he can't finish, he can't out he can't outpace the opponent because Jesus is also despite what some think he's not the fastest player he's not slow no. but he's not the fastest also not the strongest also not the tallest no so he doesn't win in those air. not good in the air well we saw that against uruguay right but i think we're picking too much on him at this point but to me he was one negative again i like he's an option for the nine sure because our options are not good he's yeah definitely not our he's not even a nine in my opinion no, he can be a nine in MLS, but at the international game, I don't think he is. No, you know, I just think he's limited. We have to understand that he's very limited, and I think people overhype goal scoring exploits in MLS when we've seen many times that it often doesn't translate to the national team. You know, we still have Sergeant Pepe and Hoppy, all of whom who can play at the nine and do many of the things that Ferreira does. I I'm disappointed. I mean, Sergeant's injured. Pepe was left off to give him a rest. Hoppy is not playing much at Mallorca, which I understand but he wasn't playing for about a month or two before the gold cup. And he was still one of our best performers. I'm disappointed that we haven't seen more of hoppy with this national team, because I think he should be looked at at the nine, despite what's happening at Mallorca. I agree with that, but I think hoppy needs to kind of like revise his career in terms of the sure. that it's been making, because you also, he also gave Greg a reason to not call him up. Right? Yeah. But here's my question. Luca De La Torre, if he doesn't get a transfer this summer, and we hope he will, if he doesn't and he's playing in the Dutch second division, there are many people who will say, oh, a guy in the Dutch second division shouldn't be playing for the national team, right? But that's kind of out of his control. If the club refuses to sell him, he won't be able to go. He didn't become a worse player because his team got relegated. And he's so not worse. He's not worse, but if he stays there for a season or two, then... But, but his performances, well, he, he, he'll, if he stays there for a season, he, you know, if he doesn't move this summer, he will stay for a season. I'm still taking him to Qatar because his performances for no, both Qatar, sure. Qatar club sure. and the national team. In other words, just because you're in a bad club situation, but if you're still performing for the national team, then it almost to me, it almost shouldn't matter what your club situation is because the number one metric should be do you perform for you know the us when you put on that jersey there are lots of guys who perform for their clubs who can't do it for the national team whether that's Ariola or ferreira or roldan even yeah i mean definitely qatar for luca because also if he does go to the dutch second well 
as of now, he is in the Dutch second division. He's not going to become a worse player in six months. But yeah, if you stay in the, the Dutch second division for two or three seasons. Sure, that's a different Then, then it's like, okay, you're performing for the national team. But dude, it, actually, his performance for the national team might even decline if he stays there for too long. Just because of the level he's going to be playing at. Um, but we'll, we'll see about Luca. As of now, I hope and I think he'll get a train. Honestly, the Dutch second division. Might as well play in MLS at that point. <laughs> so he needs to get a transfer somewhere else. But let's move on. Yeah. So again, the United States defeated Morocco 3-0. And as we always say about friendlies, take friendlies with a grain of salt. Be happy that we won. That's the most you can do. Defeat them. But remember, 2018, we faced France before the World Cup. And if yeah. that if that was a metric, we were World Cup contenders, if that was a metric. But now before we move on to the Uruguay one. I'm going to get a quick word from our sponsor real quick. And it's about the NBA playoffs that are coming to an end as the finals are going on between the Boston Celtics and the Golden State Warriors. An official sports betting partner of the NBA is DraftKings Sportsbook. And now any new customer can make any $5 NBA bet and get $150 in free bets instantly. So download now DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use the promo code TBPN. So that is TBPN. Make any $5 bet during the NBA Finals and get $150 in free bets instantly. The promo code, once again, is TBPN. And thank you, DraftKings Sportsbook, for sponsoring this podcast, the official sports betting partner of the NBA. So now we move into the Uruguay game. Um, and it was a very different game. There's context to be provided. The first thing that I took away from that Uruguay game, regardless of who played and who started, was the intensity that they brought to that game compared to Morocco. They were clearly using that as a World Cup warm-up. They had a lot of guys really, you know, I wouldn't say it was 100% intensity the same way they would be in a World Cup, but they definitely did a really good job of making it a competitive game, which I enjoyed. Yeah, I, I also think part of the intensity is, one, Uruguay always brings intensity as far as I'm concerned. And two, the fact that they were playing pr pretty much, if we're being completely honest, um, two out of the 11 were subs. Sorry, two of the 11 out of, were starters, technically. And one of these two is a player that's fighting for a starting job, right? Which is Darwin Nunes. He's fighting with Suarez, Cavani for a starting job. So he, Jimenez is actually a star. So there were two starters. All the other guys are fighting for a roster spot in Qatar, maybe a starting job. So they brought that intensity as they were definitely trying to show work. Now, do they lack quality in terms of the stars of Uruguay? For sure. But it's still a very strong squad that we faced. We got a 0-0 draw. I don't think the result itself is what was bad. It's just that the, I think it was more of the expectations, right? I wanted to face the best Uruguay possible, just like Mexico did. They faced most of the best from Uruguay, missing just a few key pieces. And I wanted to see our team get tested against that. And even if we lost 1-0, but, you know, just clashing at a similar level would have mm -hmm. been enough for me. So it ended up being 0-0. And at the end of the game, I was just kind of like, how much did we learn from this match, right? How much did we learn? I think we learned a lot, even though it was a B team. What did you think we learned? I think we learned that we still struggle to create. Um, you know, when a team, a high quality team compresses space in midfield, and this is the thing about Uruguay, they don't control the ball necessarily, but they control space and they control moments. But, but did we learn that yesterday? I, I feel like that's been known. And, I mean, and I feel like we're going to go to the World Cup with that. 
we struggle to create regardless. I, I, I don't know if we learned that. Yes, maybe we got another confirmation, but I don't think we learned that yesterday. It wasn't yeah, something it, new. Compared to Morocco, a lot of people were saying, okay, and, and myself included. I said Brendan Aronson really gives us a lot in midfield, but even Brendan Aronson struggled against Uruguay to really create. But I, I blame Greg for that a little bit, for throwing him halfway through the game. I thought he should start the same midfield, right? Yeah. That worked against Morocco, test him again, especially with a half-fit Weston. Weston couldn't play the full 90, so he knew that. So why not start, Brendan, see right away from the start? Because there is a difference between coming off the bench and starting. Some players are better as subs coming in, right? Some players are better starting off already in the same rhythm as everyone, already warming up with everyone throughout the match, getting wired throughout the... So, Maybe Brendan would have had a better game, he, even though he wasn't bad by any means. Actually, Brendan wasn't bad against Uruguay from what I've seen. I know you rewatched it. You're going to probably have a better take on Brendan. But I thought that was a mistake from Greg, right? Just He wanted to put the MMA midfield, but maybe he should have just gone with Musa, Tyler, and Brendan. Or, or Weston with Brendan and then put Musa for Weston, as we talked about how Musa is more of a backup to Weston. I, I just don't know what we learned new from this game. I guess maybe... We got another confirmation in regards to Paul Riola um, and maybe a little bit of Joe Scali, even though I take this performance of Scali with a grain of salt, his first start at age 19. And we've seen him face tough competition in Bundesliga and be just fine, which makes me wonder uh, if if he had played more minutes for the U.S. prior, would he have had this performance that he had? Was he just on an off day? I think a lot of people were a little bit too judgmental of Joe Scali for this game. Not saying he had a good game. Absolutely not. It wasn't a good game. But what did we learn new from this game? I just couldn't get much. Well, out of tactically, that. I'll say this about Joe Scally. When he plays on the left, he's a right-footed player. So unlike Anthony Robinson, he isn't going to go forward and bomb forward and put crosses in, which is why all of our good attacks in the first half came down the right. Because you had Tim Weah there, you know, and then, you know, DeAndre Yetlin trying to overlap. He was honestly a mess on the ball, apart from that one cross to Jesus Ferreira. It's even more evident on the rewatch. But if you're going to have Pulisic tuck inside and play midfield, you have to have a left back who can cross the ball because that's what they're there for. They're there to provide width. And that's just not what Joe Scali offers as a right-footed player. So I don't know in this 4-3-3 if Anthony Robinson's not available. Even if you put Serginho Dest there, he's, you know, definitely a better player. He cuts then middle. Huh? Uh, Des will cut middle too. Des will cut inside as well. And so you're going to lose a lot of width on the left-hand side of the field, which means that teams will funnel you left, right? They'll scout you in advance and teams will go, don't let them switch it out to the right. So they will try to use the touchline as an extra defender and force you into the left-hand side because then what are you going to do? You're going to have to go back. You're going to have to go backwards. And we saw that a lot. So tactically playing a right footer on the left when you depend so much on your fullbacks to overlap and put crosses in, it kills half of your attack. Yeah. Uh, e even though that, just to make it clear, it's not an excuse on Joe Scott. That was a tactical issue that you're saying. Yeah. I'm saying if you're le learning about tactical things that we learned brand new, that was one of them. What's weird is uh, regardless of that, Greg is a coach that is very much willing to play a right footed mm -hmm. left back. Because yeah. we've seen him, we've seen him play Des there, even sometimes when Robinson was available uh, yeah. in the past. So he, it's definitely something that he, it's, and even Joe Scally, he didn't really need to play Joe Scally there yesterday. I mean, Robinson was clearly fit enough, or maybe yeah. he couldn't start, but George Bellow was in the roster. He could have played George Bellow, and Scally could have been a right back. But 
for some reason, Greg really enjoys playing right-footed left-backs. Yeah, look, George Bellow has not earned more playing time. Most of his poor performances, unlike Scali, have come against teams like Panama or Honduras or, you know, those are the poor George Bellow performances. So if you had put George Bellow out there, I really wonder if he would have been able to cope. He hasn't been able to cope in the Bundesliga this year, unlike Scali. So I understand we still have a problem where we don't have a backup to Anthony Robinson because I don't really trust George Bellow. Probably well, you know funny? They uh, were talking about how a lot of them, a lot of the, the guys were talking about how Joe Scali is a player for 2026, right? But then when you ask them, it's like, okay, who is our backup left back? Yeah. And they're going to say, oh, George Bellow. Well, he also has gotten torched by weaker. Much opponents. worse teams. Much worse. Uh, Sam Vines, not Same. good also. Jonathan Gomez, not ready. Not ready and, and might not even play for us. Who knows? Yeah. So who is our backup? It's Sergio Dest? Okay. Probably at this point. You know, I mean, we'll have to see how Joe Scali does. Hopefully he starts at right back against El Salvador. It, it doesn't matter to me so much. Whoever you put there, you're going to lose a lot of width if it's a right-footed defender. Mm -hmm. So you can make whatever arguments you want to make for whoever, but that's just the truth. Every time, and it's true, every time Sergio Dest has played left back for us, it's the same problem. So we have to figure that out, you know, and we have to be better about developing left backs. You know, yeah. there are some young promising ones that are not ready yet. John Tolkien, Caleb Wiley, Kevin Paredes. Um, but hopefully after 2022, we'll, we'll start developing more left backs. Yeah, I also I also think that uh, one thing to consider here is I was going to say about a Kevin. I was going to talk about Kevin Paredes for a little bit, too. Uh, talking to some people that know John Brooks, apparently John Brooks has said to them that uh, Kevin Perez is actually a very good player that he noticed in Wolfsburg, by the way. And so that was something pleasant to hear. So again, and, and Joe Scali too, we talk about the, the fullback position. He, there's so many players that have had poor performances, right? And they kept getting chances. So why would he not get more chances now? I, I would personally would love to see Joe Scali maybe start against Grenada just to get his confidence up because that is a game that he should be fine and get comfortable, right? Feel good. Then maybe sub him off and then give him a start against El Salvador in a bad environment, a tough game to play, right? We know that's not easy to play there away and then see how he does there, right? But then would you want then, him at right back or would you want him at left back? I would games? want him at right back because personally, I don't like, I wouldn't even put this on. I don't like right footed left backs and left footed right back. I, I'm not a big fan of that. Same. Person. Especially regardless, because of the way we play. Yes, that adds on. But regardless of tactics, I just don't like it. I just. So who do you take to Qatar as Anthony Robinson's backup if you're in, if you're in charge? Right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think I would probably bring George Bello. Mm. I I I wouldn't bring. So we could argue about Jonathan Gomez, but. I haven't Defensively, seen it. he still has stuff he has to That's work on. That's my too. concern. It's also you're going to just throw him in the World Cup there. How, like, if we happen to play? What about Dewan Jones? Now, I don't think Dewan Jones is a long term option, but in terms of he can play with his left foot, he's good at getting up the field and putting in crosses. Definitely he's athletic physical. enough. Definitely um, physical. He's definitely physical enough to. He's physical and athletic enough, I think, to deal with it. I would have liked to see Dewan Jones in this camp just to see what he can offer there as a short term backup for Qatar. Long term, I don't think Dewan Jones is the answer, but as sort of an interim backup, could that have been an option? That's something I would have liked to have learned, but Greg clearly disagrees. At this point, yeah, because I mean, we've seen enough of George Bellow, right? And we can even talk about him in Bundesliga too. 
the first game when he played was okay, but the more he played in Bundesliga, the less he looked like he belonged. Mm-hmm. Right? It was quite while, while Joe Scali, for the most part, the games I watched, he looked just fine. He wasn't anything outside of the extraordinary. He wasn't fantastic, but he was never a liability for for Gladbach. Never yeah. a liability. I mean, he had one or two moments over the course of the 25, 30 games that he yeah. played this season, sure. But for a 19-year-old, that's normal. There are very few 19-year-olds starting as fullbacks in the top five leagues in Europe. Very mm-hmm. few. So the fact that they trust him to do that says a lot. And his club form and his, the way he's played for Borussia Mönchengladbach should earn him more of the benefit of the doubt, right? If someone's playing bad for their club and then they show up the first few games for their country and they're not good, it's like maybe that's just their level. But How we much? know enough about Joe Scally's level to say let's be patient with him and not throw him out, you know, just because of one or two bad performances against better teams than we've faced in years. How much do you think Burhalter's overcoaching might have played a role on Scally's performance? Uh, I don't know. There I mean, were reports. Honest, of, I think it was more on Scally. Um, he just didn't look. There were some basics that he didn't look very comfortable doing. Um, is it possible that the overload of instruction made him hesitant and nervous and unable to figure out what he wanted to do? Yes, but I don't know that for sure, so I don't want to make that claim. I saw some tweets from reporters in the game saying Burhalter was angry at Scally, asking him to do this, asking him to do that. Um, and again, it's not an excuse or blaming Greg because we can't really blame Greg for an individual individual's performance, right? But I'm just wondering, like, how much of these instructions and him being a 19-year-old, just like thinking, I need to impress my coach. I need to impress my coach. I need him, and it's like I need to do this. He wants me to do that. And then the moment you're thinking that, the especially because, like you said, Uruguay brought intensity. How much can that one two second of hesitancy that you'll have affect his play? Because there were moments like that. We'll see. He's going to get more chances and probably learn from this year. Why don't we talk about Paul Riola's complete and utter destruction? And, and terrorism of the right flank of the United States of America, destroying completely our attack in the right the, the right wing. I mean, it's so game. ridiculously obvious at this point. I don't understand how anybody cannot see what a complete waste of waste of space might be strong, but I also don't think it's that strong because every you know how often we played the ball to him or down that right hand side looking for Paul Ariola in the second half, and he either had a poor touch and gave it away or wasn't able to win the ball or couldn't combine, couldn't cross, couldn't do anything. And this isn't an outlier. We've seen this from Paul Ariola throughout the Gold Cup, throughout all of qualifying. He had one good 45 minutes against Panama that I think people are overreacting to, right? It's like that was the outlier. That was the exception, not the rule for Paul Ariola. He's very ineffective with the ball at his feet. And what I keep hearing from people is, well, if we are in a, you know, a winning position in a game, you bring him on to defend. Okay. I want to push back against that because you know, the best defense when you're defending against an opponent and you're trying to protect a lead is to keep the ball. If you keep the ball, you're forcing the opponent to chase you and they don't have the ball so they can't score. But if you keep turning over the ball, which is essentially what Paul Ariola did against Uruguay then you're inviting pressure. You're giving the opponent opportunities. So having a guy who can run around the field like a chicken with its head cut off, but be largely ineffective, isn't going to help you protect the lead as well as having somebody who can advance the ball, who can keep it under pressure, 
who can force the opponent to react to you instead of these constant giveaways that give your opponent opportunities to come straight down the field at you. If he's only going to defend also, then for Christ's sake, just put a defender in. Well, just yeah, put, you could put DeAndre Yedlin and Sergio Dest as fullbacks. Yeah, as right just backs, put both of them. As just a winger, and now that's defend. different. Exactly. Or even Acosta. Put Acosta as an extra defender to help protect a lead if that's what you want to do. Yeah, if, but if for oh, a winger defending, this is what's weird to me. If he was a right back, you could say, well, he's a very good defender, but he's just not good on the ball, maybe. Okay, that could be an excuse, but he's not. He's in a, He's a forward. He's a wide forward. And the primary job of a wide forward is to facilitate, create, and score goals. But Pete, even the part that they say he's good at defending is a lie. He's not good at defending. He's He works hard defending. That's what yeah. he does. He works yeah. hard. And if you put me out there, I'm also going to work my ass off, and I'm going to suck at defending against professionals. That's essentially the way to put it he's not good at defending it is a lie and people keep saying this i i there was a someone say that they rather they they can't see a better option to come off the bench at the 70th minute to help defense like i can see many options what's funny about Ariola and morris i want to include morris even though i'm sorry morris you didn't even play and i'm going to mention you i apologize (laughs) but every time morris plays and Ariola doesn't we will go on and say, oh, I prefer Ariola over Morris because Morris just looks so bad. And then when Ariola plays and he reminds me that he's equally as bad, we go on and say, oh, I prefer Morris over Ariola. I've come to the conclusion that I don't prefer either. Neither of them should be there. Also, you could put Brendan Aronson on the right wing if you're trying to protect the lead because he both works hard and is actually good at winning you know, duels and will actually be able to keep the ball and advance it and progress it. And... Remember, too, if teams are coming at you trying to score a goal, they're leaving space in behind. So you want attackers on the field that can take advantage of transition opportunities, right? That's Try to kill off the over. game, right? Try to kill off the game. Yeah, that's your that's your best opportunity to score a goal is when the opponent is pushing up and attacking you because they're leaving space in behind. You need guys who can take advantage of that space. Paul Ariola ain't it. So, Pete, for this Uruguay game, so we can move on to probably the final topic that we want to go through, which is the overall take of the camp, one from you, one from me. Uh, maybe let's just do one big positive for this Uruguay game and one big negative. Yeah. What's your one big positive is just how much some of our guys can really hang with Uruguay. Mm-hmm. You know, Yunus Musa was for me the best player of the day. I, on the rewatch, you see how good he was at helping with the build out, but also playing those long diagonals, driving forward with the ball at his feet. Can he still improve his final ball? Yes. Can he be a little more line-breaking with some passes? Yes. But in terms of facilitating midfield progression, nobody was better than Yunus Musa on the night. And he's still inconsistent. Sometimes he doesn't always do that. He's 19 years old. But it was encouraging to see that he could do it against a team like Uruguay, even if it was their B team. It is definitely very encouraging. And not just him. Brendan Aronson, you know, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKenney. We saw that they can hang with the Uruguay midfield and be able to build out under pressure. We've seen technical progress in our player pool. And I think that was, for me, the biggest positive takeaway from the Uruguay game. I think one of the big positives for me was Tim Weah. Uh, Despite him continuing to be very one-dimensional, his play is very similar almost every time. Tries to outpace you with his dribbling down the lane and then whipping across. But... Like, like we've seen many players in the past, sometimes you know what the player can do, but he's so good at it that they can't really stop him. And as much as he didn't get anything in terms of productivity and assists or goal, 
Uh, I thought he, he looked dangerous at all times against Uruguay in a defense that, honestly, even though they weren't with all their best on defense, they still had three high-quality center backs that play in top five leagues. Uh, I guess Godin plays in the Brazilian league, but he plays for the Brazilian champs, so a very strong team there. And Weo was just fine. He looked like he can be effective against top deep defenders. He even I, I still don't know if you saw that. Was it a handball or not? The one away is crossing. Yeah, it was. It was questionable. It questionable. was questionable, but definitely. What I like about Weo too is he doesn't even have to beat the defender completely. He's so good at creating just a yard of space to get mm-hmm. a cross off because he doesn't always completely beat the defender, but he just earns enough space on the dribble to be able to get a half yard to get a good quality cross off and that's huge my want to know my big negative yeah well i'm not gonna say pariola again we already talked about that uh outside of that i thought it was pull of six corners yeah uh he keeps hitting these lobbed corners which sometimes in terms of placement they're even okay right they're right in between the 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 penalty mark and the goal but they're lobbed so it facilitates for the goalkeeper and even when one of your players comes in for a header and Zimmerman actually won a header that Musleta mm-hmm. saved it they can't get it with enough power because the ball's no. like dropping if it comes a little bit more down and stronger like you know whip it a little bit in stronger and lower your defender can actually match the speed of the ball and hit it a counter uh, I don't even know how to explain it it's well, almost because like it's-, it's the speed of the ball that actually facilitates the header so you're, what you're really doing is you're using the power of the ball and you're redirecting it towards goal. But when it's dropping, it doesn't have that same power. So you have to generate your own power to head the ball, which is very hard to do on a dropping ball. The, the thing with headers is you can only head it as strong as the ball is coming towards you. I think that's yeah. the way to put it. And, and when it's lobbed up and coming down, you can't really head it down with much yeah. strength. And, and Zerman actually won a header, and then it was very easy for Musleta because he couldn't get enough power because it was lobbed. So I think Pulisic's corners were a big negative to me. And what bothered me is we've seen Pulisic take some good corners in the past, but this game he was repetitively doing it the same way. The same, same way. against Morocco too. Yeah, if you're going to lob the ball that way, the best way to do it is lob it towards the goal because then any little small deflection – Mm-hmm. Screws over the goalkeeper, but if you're gonna also lob harder it, to read for the defense, yeah, it's flat. if it's flat. But if you if you're gonna lob it like that, it has to be towards the goal because then all you need is a tiny little deflection, not really power. But if you're gonna lob it far from the goal, they need a powerful header. It just doesn't work, and that's what we saw. We were not very effective on set pieces at all. I think my big negative takeaway from the Uruguay game is that we still don't have a, a plan for when teams press us because we know that we can't build out of the back when we're being pressed. We really struggle with that. And Uruguay showed us that. So then our plan B is, well, let's lump it, not lump it, but let's kick it long. Let's go over their defense and try to have a target man up there, except we don't have one. We don't have a target man. So if your plan, and we saw this several times with Sean Johnson, the back line was pressed. They were, you know, sent it back to Sean Johnson and Sean Johnson tries to find Jesus Ferreira. It's like, that's not going to work either. If you're going to play that way, you better be sure you have a target man up there who can actually hold up the ball. And if you don't have one, you can't, then we don't have a plan. What's our plan B? Lump it long. Sure. We get it away from pressure and we get it away from a danger zone, but essentially we've just given it back to them. And again, given them opportunities to come straight down the field right back at us. So I don't, that was my biggest takeaway is we still don't have a plan for when teams press us. And then now we reach 
the end of the podcast, we're just going to give each other one overall take. It can be positive. It can be negative. Just something that we took out of these two games before we lead into Nations League, where we're going to face Grenada on Friday and then El Salvador, which, by the way, El Salvador beat Grenada 3-1 in El Salvador for the first game. And they're probably going to beat them away. Also, Salvador, we'll talk about this probably on previews in our channel. Salvador is going to be missing a lot of their players. There's issues with the Federation, but that's off topic. Pete, why don't you go first? Uh, what's your overall take of these two games? I was encouraged by uh, the opportunities that Greg gave to players and the different things that he tried. You know, he gave opportunities to CCV, to EPB, to Scali, to Tillman. De La Torre, I thought, should have gotten more minutes in that Uruguay game, but he continued to come off the field. We saw fewer we saw less of a tendency from Burhalter to play his favorites than we did in the past. We still got Paul Ariola, uh, you know, in the second half. And to be honest, I think we saw too much of Jesus Ferreira. Um, but at least we didn't see guys like, you know, Morris, or we didn't see Rodan. We didn't see, you know, even Acosta, I thought would, would have gotten some minutes in these two games. He didn't for whatever reason. I do think that Greg is slowly moving away from his, you know, favorites and starting to understand that for a world cup, a lot of these guys are not going to be able to cut it. And don't I worry, think, you'll get a lot of them on Friday. Uh, yeah, we're going to still see that in Nations League. And I almost don't mind that. Like, I don't yeah. care who plays against Grenada. You know what I mean? Um, and if they're not there. Now, if you if you keep Luca De La Torre and Brendan Aronson on the bench when they are actually in camp, that's a different story. Um, but, but at least against quality opponents, we didn't see Greg, you know, give too much time to his favorites. And also we saw him try a few different things. You know, we saw him try to play with with a you know creator in midfield. We saw a version of the back three um, against Morocco. I don't think it was really the version that we wanted to see, but there are some signs of progress being you know with Greg being a little bit more flexible. That's my big takeaway. So my mine is just it kind of sounds like a Star Wars movie. It's the MLS form strikes again because <laughs> uh, we saw Jesus and and, and Pauliola, which are probably the most informed MLS players. Most informed American MLS players right now. I can't see overall one of the overall two, yeah. and they were both extremely ineffective. Right, Ariola in the forty-five minutes we talked about extensively in this podcast, and Jesus for both games. Yeah, again, so that that's why we talk about how form, the level of competition one faces to get that form matters. That's yeah. all I have to say about that. For sure, for sure. All right, anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Nope. Looking forward to the under 20 roster should drop any day now. Uh, looking forward to two more, you know, nations league games, and there's going to be a lot more to cover in the next month. All right, everyone drop a review before, before you finish up the podcast. That's all we have to do. And we'll be back next week until then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.